events surrounding the 16th century Protestant Reformation brought about people that God would use in mighty and powerful ways. One such person was the former German monk who became a well-known but not always well-liked Christian theologian, Martin Luther. And among several things about his life, one of which you may be surprised by, it was Luther that God really used to get the church singing again. As God would have it, Luther was not only a great theologian, but also a musician who knew that when people are on fire for Christ, they can't help but sing their beliefs. Because he taught the priesthood of all believers, he advocated the full involvement of the church's music ministries. In other words, he held on to the biblical conviction that everyone in the church should sing. As Luther wrote in a preface to a collection of hymns, God is, quote, praised and honored, and we are made better and stronger in the faith when his holy word is impressed on our hearts by sweet music. To that end, in his 40s, he penned that famous battle hymn of the Reformation, one that you might be very familiar with. We sing it here. Do you know which one I'm talking about? A mighty fortress is our God, based on Psalm 46. That familiar hymn goes like this. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Now that hymn sounds very different than the typical music we often hear on Christian radio, isn't it? Instead of songs on the radio that make our Heavenly Father sound like a cosmic genie who blesses us when we just have enough faith, or songs that make Jesus sound like a boyfriend who misses us, or songs that make the Holy Spirit sound like a subjective, nebulous, mystical force that whispers in our ears at random times, songs that Christians used to sing back then were about suffering for Christ and not being afraid of demons or people who act like demons. That's because Christians during the Reformation began singing about a conquering Christ, a victorious Christ, and a kingdom that endures forever. Beloved, it was hymns like this that were sung with conviction and gusto, not shame, not embarrassment. That's because as congregations were inflamed by the revival fires of the Reformation, Christians began singing from the depths of their hearts and to the tops of their lungs biblical truth. And why is that? Because Christians among all people around the world have something and someone worth singing about. No microphones, no live stream, no solos, no choirs, no quartets, no loudspeakers, no lasers, no smoke, no big time stage production, and no 7-Eleven specials either. You know what those are, right? Those repetitive and theologically thin songs that have 11 words that are repeated seven times. 
No, they had more sound theology and a four to five stanza hymn than the vast majority of pulpits filling this country today. They began singing what they believe about God and his greatness, God and his abiding truth. And they did so with courage and not cowardice, with fortitude and confidence, not being fake or superficial. And what was their motivation for singing such hymns? Even in the face of fierce persecution. What was the reason they would sing hymns that would not manipulate the emotions but fill the mind with truth? It's because they were not ashamed of Jesus Christ, they were not ashamed of the gospel. As persecution would heat up, so would the number of hymns written heat up. As more preachers were thrown in jail, more Bibles would be copied in the people's language so they can hear the gospel for the first time in their own tongue. So with the spreading of biblically saturated hymns and the distribution of Bibles in the language of the people, God's word would be dispersed all throughout Europe. And thus the gospel of Jesus Christ spread far and wide around the world, reaching even to our own land here in America. Today, Christians living around the world sing hymns like a mighty fortress is our God, and we do that standing on the shoulders of saints who've gone before us. Friends, when we've been singing songs like, How firm a foundation, afflicted saint to Christ draw near, Jesus I my cross have taken. Friends, we are reminded that the ultimate war for our salvation has been won. It is finished. Jesus has conquered our sin problem and our last enemy, death. And yet, until Christ comes a second time for his church, We are still in a tense and dense spiritual battle. It's a tense and deeply dense spiritual warfare that only the life-anchoring promises in the gospel can sustain us in. And friends, it's these life-anchoring promises we'll be reminded of this morning in our next section in 2 Timothy. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you're using one of the pew Bibles provided, you can find that on page 578. If you don't have a Bible at home you can read, you can take that Bible as a gift from our church to you. Two weeks ago, we began a new sermon series in the New Testament letter of 2 Timothy. If you weren't with us two weeks ago, you can listen to that sermon on the church podcast, be caught up to speed. But as a quick review, the Apostle Paul is writing from a Roman prison cell sometime between AD 64 and AD 67. And while Paul had been in prison multiple times throughout his life and ministry, uh, this imprisonment was going to have no way out for Paul. This was it. This was Paul's very last letter. Thus, when we read and study 2 Timothy, we need to understand that this is in one way or another a farewell address or Paul's last words to a person he dearly loved, Timothy, in the faith. Now, who is Timothy? Well, verse 2, look with me in 2 Timothy 1, verse 2. Paul says to Timothy, my beloved child. Now, Timothy wasn't by... uh, Paul's biological son. Paul did view him, though, like a spiritual son in the faith, which is why in Paul's first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, he calls Timothy my true child in the faith. Beloved, that's why we as Christians understand that regardless if we come from a broken or dysfunctional home, or we've grown up in a home that we were deeply cared for and loved, When we come to know Christ, we gain a family with him. We gain Christ who is our life, and therefore we also gain Christ's people. Jesus' people become our people. We become members of his body. 
brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of the Most High God. You see, Paul and Timothy knew that about their relationship. They knew who bound them together in love and unity. They shared the same love. They shared the same faith. They possessed the same spirit because they were adopted into the same family by the same heavenly father. This father-son type of endearment between Paul and Timothy, it richly flavors all throughout these two letters. And as you take time to read them over the next few months, friends, we'll notice that Paul's love and commitment to Timothy is exemplary. It's a wonderful example that should challenge us and inspire us in all our discipling relationships. And Timothy's character and teachable disposition is also a wonderful model for us too. His willingness to follow Paul, learn from Paul, and even trust Paul shows what God intends for healthy friendships, what God intends for healthy relationships, even between members and their pastors. Friends, if you and I had sat in a hotel room listening to Paul and Timothy speak to one another, fellowship with one another, we would be edified just by watching the conversation. They loved each other. They trusted each other. They experienced God's best in their relationship because God and his glory was number one in that relationship. I pray that each one of us would have the opportunity in this lifetime to experience a relationship with another believer like that. Timothy was greatly shaped, mentored, and discipled as a Christian by the Apostle Paul's investment in Timothy. Timothy was raised by a mom, Eunice, and a grandma, Lois, who would eventually become Christians themselves and thus teach Timothy the scriptures. Uh, sometime after Paul and Barnabas decided to agree to disagree, kind of part ways on that second missionary journey, uh, the Lord would provide a new friend, a new ministry partner, and that would be Timothy. They would travel together all over the Mediterranean for about 15 years together. You can read that about Acts 16 of when they joined up together. But just to refresh our memories on what we covered in that previous sermon in verses 1 to 5, here was that main point. The Christian faith is passed on through deep interpersonal relationships and faithful ministry partnerships. So what did Paul want to convey to his ministry protege here in the first section of his letter as Timothy would soon have to move forward in life and ministry without Paul? What would Paul want to convey one last time at the outset of this letter to a young man who would have to take the reins when Paul was gone. Look with me starting at 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. I'll read to the end of the chapter. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygalus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, 
for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you will know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have one main idea for this morning's sermon passage. I'll repeat it a few times. Here's your main point. Share in suffering for the gospel by dying to self and relying on the power of God. There it is. Share in suffering for the gospel by dying to self and relying on the power of God. Look with me again at verse 6. Paul writes to Timothy, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Uh, Paul begins here like any wise and faithful pastor would do for his congregation. Any wise mom or dad, any wise discipler would do in discipling another believer. He begins by reminding Timothy of something Timothy already knew. He says there in verse 6, For this I remind you. Now what reason is Paul alluding to here? Well, he's hearkening back to what he just wrote in the previous verse, in verse 5. He's speaking about being reminded of Timothy's sincere faith. In other words, Timothy had an authentic and genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. In other words, Timothy was the real deal. Paul wasn't suspicious of Timothy's faith. Sure, Timothy had hard times. Sure, he got weary and weak at times. But Paul wasn't having to second-guess his faith, look over his shoulder, stay up late at night worrying about Timothy's faith. Look there in verse 5. Paul said, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure, or that word could also be translated, I am convinced, I am persuaded, dwells in you as well. So here in verse 6 and following, Paul now brings to mind something Timothy needed to be reminded of in the present of what he already know was true from his past. So what does Paul Timothy remind him of? Or Paul remind Timothy of? He says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now what is this gift of God Paul is referring to? Well, I think it's most likely a both and answer. It's both the gift of saving faith that God grants to us at the moment of conversion. But it's also the spiritual gift or gifts that God had granted Timothy for ministry. And we see this kind of both and aspect even in the very passage. Remember in verse 5, Paul alludes to Timothy's sincere faith that dwelt first within him. And we know that from Ephesians 2, that faith is a supernatural and sovereign gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then if you look down in verse 14, you'll notice he makes mention of the Holy Spirit. Paul then makes mention that the Spirit dwelled within Timothy, which proves the proof in the pudding, if someone's truly a Christian, is the Holy Spirit lives within them. And the Holy Spirit bears fruit from their life. No fruit of the Holy Spirit, no Holy Spirit. And if we don't possess God's Spirit, we don't belong to Jesus. Romans 8 verse 9. So here Paul is commending his faith. He's reassuring him he's been born again. He's telling him, you possess the same Spirit that I do, Timothy. But it seems that Paul goes one step further. He doesn't just speak about the gift of saving faith, but he speaks about spiritual gifts God also blessed Timothy with for ministry. So what are spiritual gifts? Well, you can read about these spiritual gifts. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down and read them on your own. Romans 12, verses 3 to 8. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. You could also look at Ephesians 4, 7 to 11. 
But for our purpose this morning, I'll share a very clear and concise definition given by author Tom Schreiner. He writes this, quote, Spiritual gifts are gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designed for the edification of the church. Let me say that again. Spiritual gifts are gifts of grace granted by the Holy Spirit, which are designed for the edification of the church. In other words, spiritual gifts are not first and foremost for us or about us. They are for the glory of God and the building up of his church. If someone tells you in the first five minutes when they walk through these doors how God has gifted them, either tell them you've got to go get some coffee or help them sit down. We don't walk around with our proverbial resume telling everyone how gifted and great we are. That's the total opposite of what spiritual gifts are for. They're not about us. They're not even for us. They're for him and the building up of his people. Spiritual gifts are spiritual abilities that God graces believers with in order to serve and bless the church. And whatever gifts he gives us, we should be humble and thankful for whatever they are. We should not covet how God's gifted someone else. He made you for a purpose on a purpose. And we should use those gifts with a humble heart and out of a genuine love for God and his people to see his people built up. And we can see this emphasis begin to unfold for Timothy in verse 6, where Paul refers to this gift of God as something that was evaluated and affirmed through the laying on of my hand. Now, whether or not God gave Timothy spiritual gifts through the apostolic hands of Paul or they were given to Timothy at his conversion, it's neither here nor there. He's got the gifts. That's up to God. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, which meant he carried on with an authority that Jesus granted him and the other apostles to exercise for the foundation of the church. So when it says Paul laid hands on him, you'll see this phrase pop up throughout the New Testament laying hands on people, sometimes for healing, sometimes to affirm conversion happened amongst the Gentiles, but often the laying on of hands was the affirmation, installation, and commissioning of Christians to specific ministry task. Elders, deacons, and missionaries. Those are the three most common examples we see in the New Testament of the laying on of hands. Here, Paul is telling Timothy, young man, use your spiritual gift. That gift that was affirmed and confirmed by the laying on of hands. Don't waste it, Timothy. Which again, in verse 13, we're going to see carried out a little more. as kind of a bookended chiastic structure. How was he to use those gifts? What kind of responsibilities did he have? Look down with me at verse 13. Do you see it kind of bookended here? Timothy was to follow and hold fast or hold tightly to the sound and faithful and healthy teaching that Paul had trained him in. In other words, Timothy was to hold fast to all those Bible studies he was taught by Paul. Hold fast to all those book giveaways on Sunday night. All those lunchtime conversations, all those early morning coffees, all those horse rides and ship voyages, all those things that Paul imparted to Timothy, he tells Timothy, follow that, remember it, hold on to it, and apply it to your life, Timothy. Then again in verse 14, Paul told Timothy that his responsibilities and gifts were a stewardship. He's going to give an account to God for how he handles these gifts. Verse 14, he was called to guard the good deposit, which was really another way of talking about the gospel and sound teaching. So what exactly did Timothy have a stewardship of? I mean, really, if Paul is laying this down like a thick dose of peanut butter on bread, saying, Timothy, this is the first thing of the last letter I want to keep drilling into your heart. What did Timothy have to do? Hold your place in 2 Timothy 1, turn back to 1 Timothy 4. So if Paul thinks this is very important for him 
to use his gifts appropriately, humbly, zealously. We need to find out what exactly was he responsible for. Look at 1 Timothy 4. You'll see a direct cross-reference to this New Testament practice of laying on of hands again. But I want you to see it bookended in this sandwich that really describes what Timothy was supposed to do. Look at 1 Timothy 4, verses 12 to 16. Paul told Timothy, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which is given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. So what kind of gifts and responsibilities did Timothy have? Well, according to verse 12, he was to set the believers an example. Jesus is the Savior, but he's put people on earth to model and exemplify something of spiritual maturity. And that's what he was supposed to do. He was to lead by example. Also, the public reading of Scripture. In other words, Timothy was to be leading out in the ministry of the Word in corporate worship. To exhortation, which really talks about encouragement and helping God's people apply the Scriptures. And then to teaching, that's the explanation and exposition of God's word. I'll turn over back to 2 Timothy 1. So you'll see there in 1 Timothy 4.14 and 2 Timothy 1.6, you'll notice the same mentioning of the laying on of hands. Paul thought it was important to remind Timothy of this moment in his life. When you see these references put together, it appears that Paul, along with the elders of the church in Ephesus, and then by implication, the witness and affirmation of the congregation he would serve. They were all affirming the gifts, the ministry, and the calling, if you will, on Timothy's life. In other words, Timothy was not a self-called man. He was not a mama-called preacher. Timothy didn't just wake up one day and say, yeah, I want to do that with my life just because I don't really have anything else to do. He was not serving in the church or in leadership roles simply because he believed he was gifted and called to do it. No, Timothy was evaluated, observed, tested, examined, and then affirmed and installed by biblical church leadership in the context of a biblical local church. And that same principle is true for us too. We are all gifted by God's Spirit, if you're in Christ, to serve, to edify, and build up the church. All Christians. But we use our gifts first by humbly submitting ourselves to the Lord and under the leadership He has ordained to give oversight in our life. That's why Paul said that humility is required to rightly understand spiritual gifts. Romans 12, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, friends, we should never automatically think we're gifted and called to do something until we've thought soberly about those gifts and how they are to be evaluated and affirmed and then exercised in the biblically proper way. And so for Timothy, he had been through that process. Paul was just reminding him of it. And it appears in 2 Timothy 1, Paul had to remind Timothy of this significant reality, this significant moment, lest Timothy forget and it lead to his disobedience. But why did Paul have to remind him of this moment then? I mean, did Timothy have like amnesia all of a sudden? He's kind of a young man. He's got a good memory. Why did Paul have to reiterate or rejog his memory of how God had gifted him 
for gospel ministry. Look with me at verses 6 to 8 now. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Verse 7, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Friends, Timothy was facing temptations just like we do. When God puts challenges in front of us that he won't let us off the hook about. Timothy was facing temptations just like we do. When God puts an opportunity in front of us to trust and obey him in new but very difficult, challenging, and faith-testing ways. Like us, Timothy was tempted to be timid, to be afraid, to be a coward, to be ashamed of the gospel, to be ashamed to be associated with Paul. Timothy was tempted just like us to care too much about what other people think, to allow personal comfort zones, self-preservation, and self-love get in the way of bold and sacrificial obedience to Jesus. You see, Paul knew this about Timothy It doesn't mean that Timothy was known by his timidity. He just knew Timothy from all those years of ministry, and he got out in front of him. And he said, Timothy, these temptations are coming your way. I'm pushing you. I'm pushing you towards faithfulness, lest you slip into forgetfulness and faithlessness. Friends, good leaders push you out of your comfort zone. Good parents are always thinking three steps ahead for their kids' welfare. Good pastors care about how you're doing now, but are wanting to present you in the fullness and maturity of Christ on the last day. Paul loved Timothy too much to let him grow complacent. And so he said, Timothy, do not be timid or afraid. Brothers and sisters, in what ways has fear controlled you lately? In what ways has being timid, scared, filled with suspiciousness, and distrust of others, paralyzed with anxiety, bitterness, and the fear of man. In what ways have these things been popping up in your life lately again and again? In your parenting, in your marriage, in your friendships, at your job, in your school, maybe even here in this church. Friends, whenever God has placed an awesome opportunity for his power to be displayed through us, the alluring temptation to back away and run away is coming for us. Even when God has already made it abundantly clear Through what his word says, a temptation will come towards us that begins to cloud our thinking. Did God really say? Can God really be trusted? Does God truly mean only good for me, no matter what comes? When God has made it abundantly clear what we should do next in our lives through the wise counsel of godly saints, 
a temptation will come that says, you can't trust them. Trust your feelings. Don't let anyone tell you no. You know best. You don't need to ask for advice. Do what seems right to you. And when God has made it abundantly clear through his providence in our life that we should move forward in sharing the gospel with that unbeliever. Leave that toxic or dead-end job. Join that more healthy church. Plant that new church. Go back to school. Sell that house. Move to that state. Break up with that unhealthy dating relationship. Move on from an irreconcilable relationship. Ask someone to disciple you. Humbly disciple someone who wants to be discipled. Serve in a particular ministry that has immediate needs. Step up in leading your family. Humble yourself to serve your family. Teach that Bible study. Lead that small group. Preach that sermon. Whatever it is, whenever God is leading us to speak, do act or invest for his glory, the advancement of his gospel, the building up of his church, you best believe it, brothers and sisters, the fierce, deceptive, ferocious, relentless attacks, lies, and pushback of the evil one will come. It will come with a vengeance and a trap, especially if we're allowing unrepentant sin to stay in our life, running from God, self-conscious disobedience, ungodly relationships, isolating ourselves for too long, or bad teaching filling our minds. That's not an accident. This is spiritual warfare. Ed Welch put it this way, the devil stands against anything that can exalt the true God. Whenever we fear anything, a little God, person, or anything in subhuman creation other than God himself, Satan is basking in the darkness we have created. By lies and other deceptions, he minimizes our sin. He suggests that God is distant and that God's word cannot really be trusted. In fact, he suggests that God is holding out on us, keeping us from good things. To heighten our need for vigilance, Gavin Orland once said, if demons were visible, we'd pray a lot more. That's something to think about. Beloved, we face a threefold enemy every day we wake up, every day. Our flesh, the unbelieving world, and the devil. Some of our suffering, friends, is the result of living in a fallen world. Romans 8, it's a part of the decaying of this body. Some of our suffering is self-inflicted. Our sin has left us miserable. Empty, depressed, full of shame. And some of our suffering, friends, is the very result that you're being obedient to Jesus. Friends, it is normal. The more serious you get with Jesus, the more battle fatigue you will experience. This is war. That's why we should pray often, pray together, pray confidently for boldness from God to control us and not timidity. We all need a growing, holy fear of God to control us whose perfect love in Christ cast out all sinful fear. Isaac Watts once said, the Lord of hosts alone is the proper object of our supreme fear. He will overrule and abolish all other fears. The fear of the Lord is an effectual cure for sinful fear. That's why Paul reminds Timothy of this life-anchoring promise. Friends, if timidity, anxiety, depression, shame, fear, complacency is literally shackling you. Look at verse 7. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power 
and love and self-control. According to verse 7, what is power? Power, it's the spiritual strength and might of God that raised Jesus from the dead, now living in us who have the Spirit living inside us. God gives all his children that power. No exceptions. What is love? It's the patient, kind, enduring commitment to do what is right and true towards another person. Love is treating others in the same manner Christ has treated us. Which means that biblical love, friends, not pop Christian radio, biblical love is both tender and compassionate, but also tough and tenacious. Author Brian Chappell says, the love that the Spirit gives stands tall and perseveres. God gives his children that kind of love. What is self-control? The Greek word here has the idea of a sound mind, having sound judgment. If you want to put there in your Bible, if you're one of those who like to read in their Bible, write in their Bible, you need to be reading your Bible, write in your Bible. Literally means level-headedness. Level-headedness. It's the opposite of being a hothead. Emotionally unstable. A mental yo-yo. An emotional roller coaster. It's the opposite mental state of a drunk driver. Someone who is drunk is under the influence of a substance. They're in an altered state of mind where the ability to make wise and safe decisions isn't possible anymore. But on the contrary, God both enables us by his spirit and he commands us to be men and women who are of a sound mind, level-headedness. Friends, sometimes life gets really hard and we are not doing well mentally. It's okay to share that. It's okay to share if you're an emotional wreck. But if that's where you're at, the worst thing you can do is isolate yourself with those emotions. The worst thing you can do is find people who are a emotional yo-yo like you. Someone's got to get outside the pit. Someone's got to hold the rope. That's why we need the body of Christ. We're not always all okay, but some of us are. And that's why we need each other to help us get back on our feet. Friends, when a sober-minded believer steps into our suffering, they are a gift from God to us. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. And beloved, here Timothy is being reminded. Timothy, if you're tempted with any kind of timidity, any kind of raw hatred, any kind of flying off the handles in despair or wrath, that's not the Spirit. God gave us a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. Friends, it's only when we die to self and rely upon the power of God in our lives can we use our spiritual gifts as God intended. It's only when we check our egos at the door when we enter our church, check our egos when we enter our home, do we rightly understand how to serve his church. And how to love the people in front of us. So in light of these temptations that Timothy faced, much like we do in our own lives, what did Paul tell Timothy to do? What are we called to do then? Notice what he says there. He says, don't be afraid or ashamed, but fan into flame your spiritual gifts. It could also be translated to stir up or kindle afresh. One of the things I'm looking forward to about the fall into the winter or sitting around a fire outside. I'm a little paranoid getting near fire, so if you ever do that with me, you have to pull me back, because I'm a little over the top. Those of you who know me know what I mean. 
But if we're wanting to protect that fire from that cool breeze blowing it out, what do we got to do? We got to protect that fire. Protect it from the cold wind. Maybe relight some wood, spread it around, and stoke those flames again. And that's what Timothy was to do, just like we are. Fan into flame, rekindle afresh the gifts of teaching, preaching, leadership, and shepherding. Friends, these are instructions for us too. We're getting cold and icy, bland and apathetic. We need to surround ourselves with others who are doing well spiritually to stir us up, to encourage us, to challenge us, that we might be reminded of these gospel promises once again. But yet Paul's not done reminding Timothy, is he? He's got something even deeper and greater to remind Timothy of so that he doesn't crash. Look at me at verses 8 to 12. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Here Paul does two things to, really in back-to-back fashion, nail into the wood of Timothy's memory something Timothy needed to remain steadfast. In essence, he tells him two things. Number one, remember that God saved you and why he saved you. Remember that God saved you and why he saved you. And number two, remember me, Paul, as an example and do likewise. Remember me, Paul, as an example, and do likewise. Let's look at that first one together. Remember that God saved you and why he saved you. Paul says that through the gospel, God saved Timothy and us, who are in Christ, to a holy calling. What is a holy calling? It's a life fully dedicated and set apart for him. All Christians, a life fully dedicated, consecrated, set apart for him. It's a life that will look different and distinct as we listen to our holy God and grow to become more like his holy son, Jesus Christ. It's a life submitted to the lordship of Christ and letting the light of Christ shine through us to an unbelieving world. It's a life that lives for a purpose greater than oneself. It's a life that aims to protect the unity of God's church by walking in a humble manner and a holy life. You know Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Friends, listen to this. He goes a little deeper. Actually, way deeper. He called us and saved us, not because of anything good or worthy or righteous, or holy in us. He says there in verse 9, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Have you ever noticed how people tell time differently? So Lily, Kate, you're in high school. If I were to ask you, Tell me about something that happened a long time ago. 
Most high schoolers think last week was a long time ago. Then those of us in our 20s and 30s, you know, we're getting a little older, right? And, and we think five years ago was a long time ago. When you get in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, about 20, 25 years ago, that's a long time ago. But when you get in your 70s, 80s, and 90s, everything was a long time ago. 60, 70, 80 years ago, it feels like a whole other world. But Christian, if someone were to ask you, when did God set his amazing love on you? You know what the biblical answer is? A really, 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 really long time ago. How long ago, Pastor Blake? Before the world began. Before there was even time. Before there was even space, before there was gravity, before there were stars and the moon and the sun and rivers and oceans, before billions and billions and billions of people who have lived on this earth, before then, a long, long, long time ago, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, set his sovereign and free love on a people not based on anything good, holy, or righteous about them and said, you are mine. The Father took an innumerable amount of people to give to his Son as a bride, a people he gave him in eternity past with their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And the son said, Father, I love you. They're in sin and rebellion to your holy, righteous presence. Someone has to die. Someone has to pay the penalty. And I will freely go. God the son, the second person of the triune God, took on human flesh, became a man, and dwelt among us. Jesus of Nazareth, born of a virgin, lived a perfect, flawless, holy life in obedience to his Father, willingly laid down his life on a criminal's crucifixion on Golgotha, and he was forsaken for a moment under the Father's just wrath to bear the just penalty of our sins against a holy God. He drank the Father's wrath in full. He died. He gave up his breath. He was buried. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead. He did what verse 10 says, abolished death and brought light and life and immortality through the gospel. The good news is this. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you turn in faith to Jesus Christ, my non-Christian friend, the Holy Spirit of the living God has already turned you to him in faith. You and I cannot escape the eternal, before the ages began, love of God. Timothy needed that reminder. Because when the warfare is thick, the opposition is, opposition is fierce, sin is crouching at the door, I need more than nursery rhymes. 
I need more than a pat on the back. You and I need a fresh understanding of the sovereign, eternal love of God for sinners like you and me. And that's exactly what Timothy needed. Because, friends, when we marvel and we revel on the love of God, it makes us happy in Him. William Cooper said this, Mark and mind this well, free grace and love sent Jesus Christ into the world with all the train of spiritual blessings. Oh, meditate and mind the infinite free love of God in all the sweet streams of it. Dwell on it, be ravished by it, and give the grace, God of grace and love, the glory for it forever. John Flavel said, our happiness was secure before the world and is most free. The remedy for a downcast soul is not for other people to give us what we want. The remedy for a downcast soul is to lift our eyes to Calvary and to search out the depths of God's love in Christ that began in eternity past. He appeared. He came. He rose again. And he's coming back again. This is the good news. But Paul reminded Timothy of another thing. He reminded him of the example he set for Timothy. Look at verse 11. Paul reminded Timothy that he was being obedient to God's gifting and calling on his life. A preacher, apostle, a teacher. Look at verse 12. He says, which is why I suffer as I do. Friends, it goes back to what I said earlier. When you are obedient to God's will in your life, at some point, you and I will suffer for that obedience. Don't be surprised by it. Jesus tells us to count the cost. And when we're obedient, it sometimes gets costly. If you want to live free from spiritual warfare, free from the difficulties of the Christian life, then simply do nothing and waste your life. Remain an armchair quarterback who watches other people live out the Christian life and then you just miss out. But friends, if you step up, speak out, get bold, carry your cross, stand firm, bury one another's burdens, friends, you and I will be slandered, lied about, hated, persecuted, betrayed, bitten by sheep, attacked by wolves, and unfairly criticized even by people you deeply love. Albert Hubbard wisely said, to avoid criticism, do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. That's why Paul said he suffered, because he was obedient to what God had put on his life. Tom read earlier that we are blessed from the Beatitudes. Jesus said, if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And as his good example, Paul's tell Timothy, Paul's not ashamed. He was willing to be unjustly imprisoned. He knew God personally. He knew him powerfully. He knew him experientially. As we close this chapter, there's one last thing Paul wanted Timothy to remember of something he was already, seems to be, very aware of. In verse 15, Paul speaks about being abandoned, betrayed, or simply losing partners in the ministry. We're not giving any explanation for why, though in chapter 4, we'll get there towards the end of November, we can assume it was because the persecution got so fierce, they got scared. They kind of flaked out on him. It's even possible that these two men, Phygelus and Hermogenes, they walked away from Paul because they were listening to the wrong people. They were listening to false teachers. They got in with the wrong crowd. We're just simply not told. They walked away from Paul and left him high and dry. However, in verses 16 to 18, we see Paul praise God and commend the example of one believer named Anisiphorus. His name literally means one who brings profit. The idea of one, of one who refreshes, revives, and recovers someone to better health. Think of a glass of water in the middle of July in Arkansas. I don't care how small or big the cup is. Just throw it at me, whatever. I want my tongue to be 
refreshed. That's literally what this guy's name means. He lived out the name he had. He refreshed Paul. He was a cool glass of water in a hot desert day. When others cut ties with Paul and turned their backs on him, others unfairly and harshly criticized him and left him, Anisiphorus did it. He embodied what the Spirit does in Christians when we die to self and we live by the power of God. Anisiphorus was full of power, full of love, full of self-control. Did you notice there in verse 16, his love was so obvious. He searched for me earnestly. He tracked him down. He was not ashamed of the gospel. He was not ashamed of Paul. Friends, when the going gets tough, the quality and substance of our friendships will be tested and revealed. Brothers and sisters, are you a source of refreshment to other believers? Are you a glass of cool water on a hot desert day to someone who needs it? Are others made glad and encouraged and strengthened when they're around you? And this forest was that for Paul. Friends, may that be true for us. Lord, use me this week to be a source of refreshment, showing hospitality, a listening ear, an arm around the shoulder, a tight bear hug, an encouraging note. Simply, I love you and I'm for you and I'm not leaving you. He did that for Paul when others were scattering. Friends, we love because he first loved us a long time ago. Friends, why do we need reminders like this? That's all Paul's doing in this first chapter. Reminding him of these spiritual gifts, reminding of God's love in eternity past, reminding him of the example Paul set for Timothy. Why is he constantly reminding him? Because we're a forgetful people, aren't we? We let our feelings control us sometimes more than the foundation, the firm foundation of his word. Warfare is real. We get weary, discouraged, and fearful. We lose focus. That's why we need the body of Christ to remind us, even of things we already know. Members of CCBC, so if you're not a member here, you can stay seated, of course. But this is more of a family living room brief way to end the sermon. This Wednesday, we'll, we will celebrate three years as a church family. Jacob, you usually clap during these moments for us. There we are. There we are. He, he's our clapper and enthusiast. Friends, we too need to be reminded of what many of us already know. God has called us to be a church made up of many different members with different spiritual gifts, and yet those gifts are to be used in accordance with his design for the building up of his church. We've all been given a holy calling where God's glory, Christ's reputation, and his word take center stage. We are called to remember how far the Lord has brought us. We can't forget the sufferings he has brought each of us through, the disappointments he sustained us through, and we can't forget how much he's blessed us, how he's met our needs, converted sinners. We've seen babies in the faith grow to maturity, men and women discipling one another, young kids singing biblical truth and loving it. The Lord has brought us thus far, and we shall rejoice. Friends, we cannot grow complacent. We cannot be timid. We cannot drag our feet back away. We cannot allow a love for self prevent us from sharing in suffering for the gospel by the power of God together. The greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel and the growth of this local church will be two things. 
forgetfulness and pride. Forgetfulness and pride. Forgetfulness, if we neglect our first love, forget why we're here, forget God's faithfulness. And pride, self-sufficiency, putting ourselves first, demanding to have our way, being hypercritical rather than hyper-thankful. We keep Jesus front and center in our church. Humble service front and center in our thoughts. Dying to self, relying on God's power and the word of God. Friends, this is how Christ is building his church. This is how Christ is building this church. May this prayer be our own. May I never be ashamed of Jesus or his words. Never be deterred from fulfilling a known duty through fear. Never be discouraged from attempting it through weakness. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, self-control. Let's pray. Father, what amazing love you have shown to us through the gospel. That in eternity past, you set your love on us, not because of anything you saw good in us, but simply out of your own grace and mercy. Father, we pray that we would just remind one another and remind ourselves of things we already know how you've gifted us for service, and how those gifts should be used in accordance with your design. Father, we pray you would cause us to live holy lives and that we would protect the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And Lord, we pray that we would keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus Christ lived, he died, he was buried and resurrected and coming back again. Lord, we pray that we would be a church who believes it, who lives it, and who sings it. We ask all this in his name. Amen.